Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, June the 5th, 2023. As always, I'm talking to you from San Francisco, a place that imagines itself, I think, as a city, but generally uh, doesn't qualify on lots of different levels. One place that does, of course, qualify is New York City. We've done lots of shows on it. Uh, one with the writer Thomas Deeger on warning us that we shouldn't be too nostalgic for a New York City that has disappeared. We should be thinking about New York City in a forward way. One uh, with the New York Times architecture columnist Michael Kimmelman about how New York should be savored on foot. He wrote a book about savoring uh, New York on foot. And another with the crime writer Dwyer Murphy uh, on going out without an iPhone. That's the best way to savor and understand New York. Maybe there's another way, though. Maybe one way, and I think my guest on the show might suggest this, one way to appreciate New York, to capture it, to encapsulate it is to go to a bar, a bar like Coogan's in Washington Square, in Washington Heights, uptown Manhattan, which no longer exists, but was once uh, one of the, the legendary New York bars. Uh, my guest, John uh, Michaud, indeed has written a book, a kind of uh, history of Coogan's called Last Call at Coogan's, The Life and Death of a Neighborhood Bar. And he's joining us, not from New York, but from close, from New Jersey, from his home in Maplewood, New Jersey. John, congratulations on the new book. Um, I, I began by suggesting that um, Thomas Deidre, I'm sure you're familiar with his work, warned us about nostalgia. Is there an element of nostalgia in this book, Last Call at Coogan's? It certainly has a and the, the, the title of the book has a, a nostalgic tinge. Um, it's probably more elegiac than nostalgic, I think. It's, it's capturing a, um, a time and a place that, that no longer really exists, that, that is, um, was fading even, even as I was starting to write about it. Um, but I think it's something that a time and place that we could, that we could learn from, and particularly an institution that, that we can learn from. So tell me a little bit about this bar, John. I know that you frequented it. I personally never went. I, I'm not actually that familiar with Washington Heights. I'm a classic tourist in New York City. When I go, I generally go uh, to the downtown area, particularly because my son was at NYU. W what kind of place was Coogan's? Well, uh, so first let's identify Coogan's as a neighborhood bar, which is different from many other kinds of bars. It wasn't a dive bar. It wasn't a sports bar. It wasn't a hotel bar. It was very much a neighborhood bar, but it didn't begin as a neighborhood bar. It was opened with the express intention of serving the nearby um, Columbia Presbyterian Hospital. And it was only after a few years of doing that, that a new ownership group came in and decided that what they really wanted to do was, was serve the community. Um, and not just um, not just serve the hospital. Of course, many of the people in the community worked in the hospital, um, but that refocus from an institutional cafeteria to a neighborhood bar transformed Coogan's into to something else. 
Um, Washington, Washington Heights, Heights, of course, is in, um, is in northern Manhattan. A lot of people who come to New York don't get up there unless they go to see the Cloisters, which is the branch of the Met Museum that's up there. But it's uh, long been a neighborhood of immigrants. It's long been a multi-ethnic, multi-racial, majority immigrant neighborhood. And Coogan's, founded by a bunch of um, children of Irish immigrants, um, embraced that that uh, diverse community and sought to serve it and sought to be a place where people could come together and uh, bridge their differences. You begin the book in the in the mid uh, or in the I think in the early 80s, uh, John, with a horrible accident uh, uh, at the Mets uh, at the baseball field, which resulted in the beginnings of Coogan's. Tell us about that accident and how it generated Coogan's bar. Yes, yeah, so there there was uh, an electrician named Joey McFadden who was paid to maintain the scoreboard at Shea Stadium. And one day, uh, on a hot July day, uh, he slipped and fell from the scoreboard and he broke his leg. And um, a year later, he sued the Mets and Rheingold Beer, which had paid for the, the scoreboard. And uh, the settlement, the, I don't, the amount is undisclosed, but the settlement that he received actually helped fund two um, famous New York bars. One was McFadden's that Joey opened with his brother, Steve McFadden, uh, down on 42nd Street, and which later became franchised and ultimately opened up a branch at the new uh, city field that the Mets opened. And the other that Joey helped fund was, was Coogan's up in Washington Heights. It's worth noting that, that both the McFadden's and indeed many of the Irish barmen in New York came from the northernmost neighborhood in Manhattan, which is called Inwood, which was the last fully Irish neighborhood in in uh, Manhattan. And they uh, were right next to Washington Heights. And so that proximity allowed them to think that they might succeed in Washington Heights, where many other people uh, might have second-guessed that, that decision. So what was so great about Coogan's? You, you write it represented the promise of New York incarnate, multi-ethnic, friendly, welcoming, smart. Sounds like the kind of marketing bump that a, uh, <laughs> uh, that a bar might put out. But for you, this was real. Yeah, I mean, it it's, sounds like marketing, except that it's absolutely true. Um, and, and when I interviewed, I did more than 100 interviews for the book, and, and I found that, that uh, sentiment expressed by all the different kinds of uh, people who went to Coogan's, from police officers to surgeons at the hospital, to uh, transit workers, to local community board people, to um, immigrant activists who are working in the neighborhood with um, at-risk youth. So Coogan's meant something to all of those people. And um, one of the ways it did it is it was an adaptable space. It was a large restaurant, 4,200 square feet. It could hold 150 people. It had three different rooms, a bar room, a dining room, and a function room. And so it could be many different things to many different people. Uh, they could host a theatrical performance in the in in one room. They could host a political fundraiser in another, and then they could host a retirement party for a cop in, in, in the bar. So all of that could be going on at the same time, and so that allowed them to be um, to be everything that that their community needed, especially in a part of of New York City where people didn't have living rooms, and so they couldn't host large gatherings in their homes. Uh, apartments were small and often crowded, 
and they needed a place like Coogan's where they could gather and interact with their neighbors. And of course, for a while, it was profitable. Uh, I know that it, it went through some tough times. What was it? I, I mean, was there anything unusual about its business model? It was clearly committed to being a neighborhood bar. I assume that the prices were reasonable. Um, did they do things correctly when it came to business? Because many bars are called, but few are chosen. Most fail one way or the other. They're rather like restaurants. Well, a lot of a lot of their success is tied to their their location and also the time they opened. They opened in 1985, which was the beginning of the worst of the crack epidemic in in New York City, and Washington Heights was the drug marketplace not only for New York but for much of the East Coast. And the the streets were dominated by violent crime and by drug gangs, and so nobody wanted to open a bar in that neighborhood, and um, what they did is they opened their bar in the face of all of that, in the face of all common sense saying you shouldn't open a bar in a crime-ridden neighborhood like this. And so they provided people a place to go, not only to escape uh, from the violence, but to collaborate and work together to counter um, all of those social ills that, that the violence and the drug dealing brought to their community. How did they keep the drug dealers out of the bar? Well, it helped that a lot of the local precinct officers uh, drank at the bar. It, it, you know, at the very beginning, they one of the first groups of clients they attracted w was the cops from the local precinct, and that kind of set the tone. The, the barmen themselves, the, the owners, were were tough Irish guys, and they would not allow drugs to be sold. They would there was a they would follow people into the bathrooms and bang a few heads off the walls to to encourage people not to come back if they were selling drugs. So um, those, those factors. And then there was something larger, which was a sort of a, a communal will among the people who gathered there not to allow, to have one place where, where um, drugs would not uh, dominate their lives. And, and Coogan's was that place for many years. The NYPD, of course, is controversial. Not everyone loves them, both within New York and elsewhere. Uh, did the bar have, a, so to speak, a politics? Well, the bar was um, the bar served a largely um, democratic population, and the bar owners themselves were centrist but left-leaning. I would say liberal, in the old-fashioned sense of liberal. Um, and uh, of course, many of the police officers who drank there were more conservative in their politics. But through sheer force of personality. And also because of the service they provided, the owners of Coogan's were able to bridge that gap. They could host, a, as I said, a, an event for the cops one night, an event for the uh, local community that actually, local community organizers that were protesting against the police the next night. It was understood that Coogan's was neutral and, and could cater to both of those communities. In a sense, um... John, does, does, does Coogan's offer some lessons for us in terms of how to transform the internet or the world into a public space? Uh, lots of debate about that. We've had many shows, obviously, about the polarization of politics, the absence of conversation. What, what does Coogan's or its success, its glory, it, 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 there's a sad ending which we'll come to, but in terms of the life of Coogan's, what should it teach us today as we struggle to 
build public space and talk to one another? Well, uh, the owners of Coogan's were deeply suspicious of, of, of the uh, social media revolution. One of them liked to say that social media is antisocial. And they were uh, deeply They're concerned. They're not the first about... or the last to make that point, I think. No. Um, they, they were deeply concerned about uh, the durability of their business model. One, one of the other owners would say, you know, why would you go out to a bar when you can, with your telephone, you can have a high definition uh, movie on your screen. You can order food from any restaurant in the city delivered to your door. Um, but the reason you would go out is, is to meet people and to meet people that you wouldn't normally walk, run into in your day-to-day -day life and to, and to uh, enjoy the sense of community. Um, how do we get people to do that? I don't know. Uh, there is clearly a hunger for it. Um, while I was working on this book, I was also working in a public library and I found a surprising number of connections between neighborhood bars and, and public libraries. And uh, fortunately, the library where I work is is very popular. In the right, community. and I was going to ask that. You, you work and at I a library called the, the Melbourne Free Public Library in um, New Jersey. Might there be an argument, John, in transforming libraries into bars? <laughs> um, I think you can have the two together in the same community. Um, serving overlapping but not identical populations. Um, I don't think we want to be serving alcohol in the library just yet. But what else does a good library and a good bar have in common? Is it the space? Well, one thing they both do is that they gather the, the local history. Um, libraries often do this in a formal way. They acquire yearbooks from the high school. They keep the archives of the local newspaper or magazine. Um, bars do it in a more piecemeal way. They'll uh, have pictures from events in the community's history on the walls. People can walk in and see their younger selves um, on the walls. And then there's also the, the storytelling element of bars, how lore is, is retained, sometimes enhanced uh, in a bar and passed down from, from one generation to another. So they're both repositories of local knowledge and lore uh, and culture. Many people will be familiar with you uh, in addition to being a librarian, you're also a successful novelist. You wrote When Tito Loved uh, Clara, a very successful novel. You also write quite often for The New Yorker. Um, why did you choose to tell a nonfiction story in, in, in this book? Um, was there a polemical element? Were you trying or are you trying to educate people about the value of neighborhood institutions or bars? Or did you think it was just too good a story to avoid, to miss? Well, uh, well there's not a polemical element there, but there's a very personal element to it, which is that um, uh, in the wake of the 2016 election, I found myself, like many fiction writers, struggling to write something that, that met the moment, that, that felt commensurate with what was going on in the country. And so I was really having a difficult time with my fiction. And when I went up to Washington, what happened in 2016? I felt that here was finally a story that I needed to hear and that I felt other people needed to hear. And it was a story that did feel to me that uh, was commensurate with, with the moment we were living in. What happened in 2016? 
Um, uh, the general election. Oh, okay. Um, and of course, that general election uh, also resulted in the COVID crisis. I don't know if it resulted in it. Certainly they overlapped, which um, is the reason for the death of the neighborhood bar. How sad was and is that this last call at Coogan's? You, you describe your book as elegiac rather than nostalgic, but there's an element of sadness here, John, isn't there? There is. Um, well, Coogan's almost suffered a death in 2018 uh, before the before the pandemic started, when uh, their landlord raised their rent mm. by an extraordinary amount of money. Uh, Forty grand a month, right? Yeah. Uh, tripled the rent, basically. And uh, it was only a massive community uh, uprising led by local politicians, local community activists, and of course, Lin-Manuel Miranda, that reversed that. But I think that having gone through that uh, experience of nearly closing, they were much more able and prepared when the, when the um, pandemic came along. Uh, and so they very quickly decided, they read the tea leaves, they knew what was coming, and they decided that they were not gonna try and stick it up. I should note that two of the owners are in their 70s and were, um, you know, nearing retirement age and that the uh, the lease that they signed with the hospital was not not an indefinite lease. It was not a long lease. So they, they did have the, the finish line in view even then. But um, it certainly it was curtailed and it was much more abrupt uh, than anyone wanted. And they never got to say a proper goodbye to their community um, because of it. They just closed uh, on St. Patrick's Day and, and basically never reopened. You mentioned Lin-Manuel Miranda, one of the supporters. I think he, he helped the bar out at times as well. I assume that there were a number of moneyed, successful, well-known people who were great fans of the bar. Why didn't a group step in and buy it from the 70-year-old owners who couldn't run it anymore? Well, I mean, I think that because the, the lease with the hospital was uh, relatively short and they would have had to renegotiate a lease uh, with, with their landlord. And I think that the day-to-day -day running of a bar and restaurant of that size is backbreaking work. Um, it's one thing to you know, have a pool of money that you gather up and buy the place, but somebody actually has to run the joint and... Um, and that's a that's a difficult job. You're depressing me now, uh, John. Backbreaking work. Is there a future for not just neighborhood bars, neighborhood restaurants, neighborhood bookstores, neighborhood stores of one kind or another? What what does the story of Coogan's tell us about uh, people, younger generation people who want to open a neighborhood bar? Uh, well. I think one of the stories that Coogan's tells is that you have to be adaptable. They, they um, tried a number of different things before they finally hit on their formula and found a way of connecting. You're not going to know immediately how to connect with your community. So I think that's one important thing to be adaptable, but it is absolutely a labor of love. Independent bookstores, small cafes, local shops are labors of love. And um, people will always um, want to do that. 
and some of them will succeed. Some of, some of them will find a way to connect just like Coogan's did with its community. Are there innovations here, John? I mean, I joked earlier about transforming the library into a bar or the bar into a library. Sometimes you go into bars and they're full of books. I know in England, I know some pubs which almost appear like libraries. Can one develop a bar which is simultaneously a, a bookstore or a clothing store or a restaurant? I mean, I think the hybrid approach can serve you well. It, again, it have, you have to meet the needs of, of wherever you're setting up your business. So maybe a bar bookstore, there's, a, there's actually a new bar bookstore down on the Lower East Side of, of Manhattan that seems to be prospering. Which one's that? I'm going to have to go there next time I'm in yeah. town. What's it called? Uh, I think it's called the Book Bar or the... Yes, I think it's the book bar. LitHub should sponsor one of those. <laughs> um, you know, uh, you could, yeah, you could do any number of, of hybrid um, spaces. I, I was happened to be walking in in West Chelsea, which is a well-to-do neighborhood of Manhattan, just a couple of weeks ago, and I noticed that there was a storefront that had been opened up that was called something like Community Space. It's like a place to come and meet your neighbors. And uh, they had a storytelling event uh, that night and people were going in with their kids for the storytelling event. So, um, you know, that is that that place is trying to serve the function that, that Coogan serves. So people are are taking different stabs at it. You mentioned West Chelsea, which, of course, has been radically, for better or worse, radically gentrified much of downtown New York. What about Washington Heights? You mentioned that it's a unique neighborhood. Uh, there was a piece in the New York Times recently that it still remains the last bastion of affordability. But I'm guessing it's been gentrified. Does gentrification help or hinder uh, neighborhood institutions like Coogan's? Um, I, I think it, it hinders, it ultimately hinders them. Um, I, I think that... One of the one of the community activists I, I spoke with outlined what he saw. He was one of the people who was instrumental in, in saving Coogan's during the, the rent increase. He says there are two there are two views of community, and the older view of community is community is uh, interconnectedness, networks of of friends and families and and people who live in the same area, who are there for each other and who work together and who of course have differences but find a way to to work through their differences. And then there's this uh, more gentrified notion of community, which is am amenity. What can my community offer me? What kind of restaurants, what kind of, of places can I go and spend my money? And those are two different approaches to community. And they seem to me to be um, at, uh, very much at odds with each other. So um, Washington Heights is, is transforming. It is gentrifying many of the uh, Dominican families that, that raise their children there, are now finding that the Bronx, they're being pushed up to the Bronx, even though they come back to Washington Heights for the amenities and the community organizations that are there. They come for their barber. They come for their favorite restaurant. But they're now being forced to, to be removed from the neighborhood to live in, in the Bronx. What about food, John? I mean, New York is distinguished by an enormous amount of remarkable restaurants. New Yorkers know their food as well as anyone in the world. Are the margins good enough on food that bars could become, in the UK, they're called gastropubs, although it's an ugly word. But could Coogan's have survived had they 
transformed themselves into a more of a boutique style restaurant, which might have generated more cash? Well, um, Dave Hunt, one of the owners, liked to say that food is uh, 90% of our problems and 10% of our profit. Um, but Oh, dear. <laughs> uh, but to, so bars make their money on alcohol. Um, but to that point, um, I, I think there, you can say that Coogan's, once they found their niche, they did not continue to adapt. And so as the world adapted around them, they stuck to what had continued to work for them. And so um, perhaps they needed to get, get, bring in a younger uh, partner and, and reinvent themselves. Um, but I think um, ultimately they, they were unable to do that. They were, they were doing well enough um, with their old formula, but all around them, new places were opening up and, and trying new things restaurant wise and serving the, the um, huge cocktail menu and, and all of this stuff. So um, every you time one of those very bad thing, I mean, you can serve cocktails and still be a neighborhood bar. Sure. I mean, judging from some of the photos about uh, that they sponsored the salsa blues and run and, uh, some of the other stuff I've looked at. It seems like very beer heavy. There is a there seems to be a fashion in Lower Manhattan now for wine bars. Can one have a wine bar that's also a neighborhood bar, or by definition, does it need to be driven by beer? Uh, it would have to be a very special wine bar. I can't. I just beer is just the common man's drink. You know, I think uh, I think you got to have a good a good selection of beers to be a neighborhood bar. And finally, John, I know, again, I'm, I'm not as familiar with the, the bar scene in the United States, but in the UK, you've had this winner-take-all economy where the large corporations own all the pubs and increasingly independent bars are being squeezed out. Was this also part of the, the sadness of Coogan's that now you need to be owned by a conglomerate uh, if you're going to succeed? It, it, it is absolutely the case in, in the United States, in the, in the uh, bar business here, that there is the same consolidation and I would say homogenization that's happening uh, across the corporate world in all of our entertainment and um, cultural activities. Same thing's happening with bars. You've really made me miserable, John. I don't even now have a bar to go and drown my sorrows, do I? Uh, if you look hard enough, there's still a few good ones out there. There's a great one in the in the Bronx called Anbel Bocht, 